Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Just like to thank everybody who's attending here today for your support and continuing to make our virtual platforms such a success. It looks like we have a number of people joining us here. I'm just looking on our, looks like we have about 35 people already joining on Zoom, a number of people joining on Facebook Live. So I'd like to give people a few minutes to join us and do some introductory remarks. First, for those of you who I haven't met, my name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've represented HOAs and condominiums in the state of Arizona for over 26 years. My firm currently represents over 1,000 planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my HOA board and have for many years. Since we've combined our virtual HOA Academy class with our first Friday call-in, here's how we're going to structure the class today. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to submit your first Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comment section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. And then I will answer all the questions at the end of the class. Just a quick friendly reminder, due to the number of questions that we're gonna be getting this morning, and I think we already have something like 39 or 40 questions, this free opportunity is limited to one question per association. If you plan on submitting a question live, please include the name of your HOA or condo and your current role when you submit the question. Thank you for understanding. I know we have a lot of people who are interested today in getting their questions answered for free. Okay, before we get into today's presentation, we are going to talk a little bit about the holidays. So first, happy holidays to everybody. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season with your families and friends. In conjunction with the holidays, we often get questions on decorations and holiday lights within an association. So I figured since it's December 2nd, today would be a good day to talk a little bit about that and give you some guidance as you're navigating this in your associations. First, as we know, the holiday season has officially arrived. It came on fast this year, right? Because we had Thanksgiving a little earlier than we normally do. I wanted to just take a moment to talk a little bit about the importance of having a holiday lights or decorations policy in your community. If you don't have one in place this year, obviously that's something you might be able to consider next year. You also can just implement some of these ideas as you're navigating this issue within your community. If you don't have a policy in place right now, it's not necessary for you to have a policy, but these are just some tips on how you can best handle any issues that may come up with holiday decorating. Remember that decorating is a way to encourage the community to embrace the spirit of the holidays, to bring your community together as a community, but also we have to have some regulations in place to ensure consistency and equal treatment among the membership. So here's some suggestions as you're navigating holiday decorating in your community. You wanna avoid a total ban on holiday decorations. That's not a good idea. Courts would find that unreasonable. And that kind of a bah humbug attitude is not going to be well received by your membership either. So having something saying that you can't have holiday decorations is, is not feasible. If you have any holiday related rules regarding holiday decorating, just make sure that you're uniform in the enforcement. 
I think there's always the story, right? Every year where we see it on the news, where we have one homeowner who is overzealous in their holiday decorating, and maybe they've got too many flashing lights or too many noise-making machines or whatever the issue is. You just want to make sure that if you ask that person to tone down their decorations and limit the noise, that if there's somebody else that has something similar, that we're doing the same sort of a communication with that person. If you're going to implement restrictions, sometimes you want to solicit community input. Of course, before you would ever pass any rules, you'd be discussing this in an open board meeting and having the board vote on it after the homeowners give comments regarding the policy. You might want to think about having some specific time limits for how long these decorations can be up. Over the past 26 years, I've seen cases, of course, where somebody still has the wreath and the holiday lights up in May, and obviously that's going to be too long. Maybe a good policy would be the holiday lights can go up maybe just before Thanksgiving, and then they need to be down by January 15th. That seems like a reasonable policy. We want to make sure that to avoid a risk of fire, that we ask residents to avoid overloading electrical circuits with holiday lighting and also remind residents that electric cords can be dangerous and require that owners place the cords out of the reach of children or in a way that's not going to be a trip hazard. Require that lights be rated for outdoor use without exposed wiring. Set specific times where the lights and music can be turned on and off if that's an issue in your community. I mean, I don't know, right now I have the lights on at where I live and I keep them on 24 hours a day, but nobody's complaining about it because I don't ever get to turn them on at night. But if you have neighbors that are really bothered by the flashing lights or the Christmas music that might be playing or some other bells jingling or whatever, that may be a time where you want to think about implementing a time period that this can be existing in your community. Keep reminding residents of this through the use of email to your residents or putting notices on your website. If any of these ideas that we're generating here today, people need friendly reminders, good way to do that is just to send out an email communication to your membership or have it on your website if you have one. Decorating the common areas. This is always tricky. And I know our association struggles with this a little bit. You want to be sensitive to all the different holidays that are being celebrated in your community. And as you're decorating, you need to keep that in mind. It's not to say that you can't have wreaths and garlands or they only have a menorah. It's just my best advice would be try to incorporate all of the different holidays that are being celebrated so that everybody in your community feels represented in your common areas. And one thing that we've done in the past is if somebody complains that their symbol of the holiday isn't being placed on the common areas, ask them to become involved and help you incorporate that. Now, we need to do that within reason because there are some holidays that are just popping up out of the blue during the time period. And so we want to take a look at whatever is being installed on the common areas to make sure that it is consistent with the holiday and that it's not in any way going to be something that could be divisive in the community, etc. But I think most associations are having a combination of like garlands, wreaths, maybe even a community Christmas tree. And then also have a menorah on the common areas as well for some of the larger associations. One thing that's fun that you might want to consider doing is to have a holiday decorating contest in your community. A great way to build community spirit would be to have most creative, 
best use of lights, best theme, and then hand out awards. And that really helps people to get out there and, and decorate in the community. Then you also may want to talk about Christmas parties or other holiday-related events at people's homes and how parking will be handled. Just friendly, gentle reminders if parking is an issue on your common areas or on your streets. Just talking with the owners by sending emails or putting it in your newsletter or on your webpage as to the best way to handle parking if you are having a large gathering at your home. And remember, of course, that although it's a joyous time of the year for many people, For others, it's a challenging time for whatever reason. And so sometimes people are complaining and more agitated this time of the year, we've noticed. And so just try to be kind and patient when we have situations like that and try to see the situation from all different angles and try to come to win-win solutions when there may be disagreements between neighbors regarding holiday parties or decorating or lights or noises that might be emanating from the decorations, try to find a way that's going to be a good balance and keep everybody working together and happy as neighbors. Okay, we're going to dig right in today on our questions. It looks like we have, I'm not quite sure how many people we have joining us here, but at one point, I think we had something like 50. So that's awesome for First Friday. We had, that's a great turnout, probably because we're doing it in conjunction with our Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy this morning. Okay, I'm going to dig right into the questions. It looks like right now we have 40 questions on the dot. So our first question is from a board member. If an owner volunteers to pay for all related expenses, can the board authorize that owner to alter the common ground grass in their front yard to xeriscape? Okay, so this is a great question. This kind of crosses over into the new legislation, which just went into effect in September, pertaining to associations. Now, this particular association that's asking this question is a condominium. And so that's an important distinction because there was a new law that was passed in September and went into effect that stated that an owner can convert their turf or grass in their front yard to xeriscaping and the association can't prohibit it. Now there's a couple exceptions, like if the association's maintaining it and they have to seek approval to do that and install the type of xeriscaping or artificial turf rather that is going to be aesthetically pleasing and look nice, et cetera. But that law isn't gonna apply to your association in this question because you're asking about a condominium. Let's just back it up with that. There is a law that just went into effect in September that deals only with planned communities and says that owners are allowed to convert regular turf to artificial turf. They still would have to get architectural approval, but that is something the association cannot prohibit. Okay, for a condo. So now we've got an owner in a condominium who wants to pay to have common ground grass in their front yard turn into xeriscaping. And I don't know if they mean xeriscaping like desert landscaping or if they mean artificial turf. This is something that's a slippery slope because we want to have uniformity in a condominium in terms of the landscaping, how it looks. It might look really out of place if everywhere else throughout the condominium common areas we have turf. I think it's something that the board needs to talk about with this owner. Normally, owners are not allowed to alter the common areas, especially to something totally opposite. I want to be sensitive, though, to water issues in Arizona right now and just let you know that many city, towns, and municipalities are encouraging 
associations to convert to xeriscaping and to limit their water usage and to actually not even overseed this year if they have turf. So this is a, a sticky wicket question because I do understand the water issues in Arizona and there's a lot of water restrictions that are going to be coming into play in the next 10 years from the state. But in this case, in a condominium where the owner doesn't own the common areas, I mean, they own a percentage interest, but they don't have exclusive ownership of the common areas. I really can't suggest that we allow somebody just to convert the area that's right near them that's common area into xeriscaping. But I would encourage you to start the dialogue within your communities about the benefits of xeriscaping and artificial turf and possibly start planning for the water restrictions that are going to be coming into play in the next decade as a community, not just as a piecemeal person by person thing, the community should be thinking about a general plan. Okay, let's talk about our uh, next question. It's from a board member. It looks like this is a planned community. When there is an email vote presented, is it appropriate for the manager to email the entire board how each person voted? Also, when voting, should it be a reply all vote or a private vote back to the manager? Okay, let's back up a little bit and talk about why your association is taking email votes as a board. You really need to remember that under Arizona law and the Planned Communities Act and the Condominium Act, that anytime a board, a quorum of the board is meeting and making a decision, really anytime you're meeting and discussing association business, it needs to be an open board meeting where it needs to be noticed 48 hours in advance and members should be allowed to attend, listen, and participate during the meeting. We really shy away from, or I really advise against boards taking email votes unless it's an emergency circumstance where there's no other alternative. As a baseline going into this question, I just want to let you know that from my perspective as an attorney that specializes in this practice area, you shouldn't be taking email votes like this unless it's an emergency circumstance, and that would be very rare. There are two administrative law cases or law judge cases that have been decided that specifically state that using email to conduct association business outside of an open board meeting without an emergency is a violation of the open meeting law. So be really careful on that. Going back to your question, if the manager is emailing the board to vote on things, I'm hoping it's an emergency. And if it is, you could do a reply all in the emergency section. Any other time, please do not be doing this. Asking how people voted in a non-emergency circumstance or just having the manager pull individual board members to skirt or go around the open meeting law is a violation of the open meeting law. Okay, question three. I have a board member. Regarding HOA record-keeping requirements, we have noted that we have minutes for all HOA meetings except for the period when one member was the president. This past president still lives in our neighborhood but has been challenging and difficult to work with. What can we do to address the missing minutes in our records if we are unable to obtain the missing past minutes from the past president? And then it says, if the past president is unwilling to provide the past minutes they presided over or no longer has those minutes during that time period. If you've asked for the minutes and you can't get them or you've asked for the minutes and they don't exist, there's really not much you can do. You can ask anybody else who was on the board or the management company, if you had one at that time, if they have a copy of those records. But the bottom line is, if they don't exist, they don't exist. 
And so there's not much you can do other than just have a gap in your minutes. We do have a great cheat sheet on association records and documents, which our office is sharing with you that I would encourage you to take a look at. And it talks about records retention, keeping the minutes of the association. You really should have a procedure in place so that this never happens again. Storing the minutes online or in the cloud or having a minute binder going forward is highly recommended so that you can have that institutional knowledge of what's happening in your association via your minutes so that if there's ever a challenge or a lawsuit that we have those records in one place and that we can provide them to owners or use them as evidence in a court case to defend or prosecute a case. Okay, next question. This is from a homeowner or community member. Can an HOA add to its CCNRs language to impose a transfer fee on home sales, so like a buyer fee, to be paid to the golf club in the community to support this recreational activity? Can this legally be done under Arizona Revised Statutes 33-442? Okay, so we have a great cheat sheet on disclosure fees and transfer fees, which we are going to be sharing with you here. Just so you know, all of our cheat sheets also are available on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com and you just click on the cheat sheets tab. So if, if somebody's listening to this as a video rebroadcast, that's a place that you can also find it. It just depends. I don't know if your association has set this up properly under Arizona Revised Statutes. There's a very specific procedure to charge a capital contribution fee, which also has a, a different name of a transfer fee or a new buyer fee, some people call it. You have to fully comply with the statute. And without seeing your language, some of the requirements under the statute would be the money has to go to the association for the transfer fee. The fee has to touch and concern the land. So I don't know if the golf club and the community, I'm assuming it does. And there's very specific language that has to be placed in your CCNRs after a vote of the membership to have this fee be a valid fee. So I encourage you to look at our cheat sheet on this and then compare it with your association's documents to see if how this was set up is accurate and in compliance with the law. Okay, question five is from a board member. We have both an eyesore and a health hazard in a single property. The property has a neglected front yard, has dirt and weeds, parked vehicle with cobwebs hanging underneath. Apparently it's inoperable. Backyard pool is filled with discarded junk and accumulated rainwater. Owner has been out of state for a couple of years. Her friend now lives in the home. They're paying their dues and they're current. We are a 40 home self-managed community. Several email and text messages have been sent to the owner with no improvement. What specific steps should we take prior to turning this over to you or attorney? Okay, a couple of thoughts on this. So you have some issues here, of course, with this particular owner. There's some health and safety issues here. The pool is a concern to me for West Nile virus, but it, it does appear that there's a lot of discarded junk and this could be maybe like a hoarder situation. First thing that I would recommend that you do is reach out to your city that you live in or county and the code enforcement department and file a formal complaint against this owner and have them investigate, do an independent investigation as to whether or not this is a problem. I know the county, especially whatever county that you live in, it looks like Maricopa County, they are very concerned about West Nile virus. 
I would suggest that you Google West Nyrus virus and county, and there's a hotline that you can call to report this property. So that's a first line of defense. Contact the city and county to see if there's anything they might be able to do to help you get this property cleaned up and to rectify any health or safety issues. From the association standpoint, I would start documenting this by sending the owner a letter with a copy to whoever's you know, residing in the property, demanding that they clean it up. You can levy fines against this particular owner after notice and an opportunity to be heard. The fastest way to get this cleaned up, though, truly would be just to turn it over to our firm. What I would do is we will send a very strict demand letter threatening a number of things. Number one, lawsuit. Number two, additional fines. I also will pick up the phone and contact the owner and let the owner know, send them the pictures by email if I can get them to be right at their screen of the current state of the property. They may not be aware how bad it is. And then just also let them know, hey, this is going to cost you a fortune and it would be significantly easier just for you to fix it, get to whoever's living there to correct these issues, or we're going to have to go the legal route, which is going to cost you $10,000, $20,000 in legal fees and a lot in fines. And truly, I, I can't think of any time in the past decade where we have done this, where we do, they call it like just a full court press where I'm calling them, emailing the owner and writing them a very firm and strict fan letter with a lot of legal threats as to the things we can do if they don't fix it, that it hasn't been rectified. You can go the route definitely of, of contacting the city and the county, but if you want it corrected fast, turn it over to us and we'll take care of it for you. Okay, next question, number six. This is from an HOA board. How do we ask a contractor for a discount on the bill, even though the contractor did not have any stipulations on discounts in the estimate due to all the complications and time it took to get the job done? Should we ask for 25% at first? There were many issues with this job, including employees that did not do the job correctly, which required another person to come and fix it from the same company. How do we ask? I think you just pick up the phone, call the president of the company and be real with them. Tell them, hey, this is what happened on the project. These are the problems. And we're unhappy and we're asking you for a discount. Now, of course, if you had a written contract and there hasn't been a breach of that contract per se, maybe it was delayed a little bit, but that wasn't a breach, or maybe it took them a couple of times to get it right, but that's not technically a breach, they may choose not to give you a discount. The important thing is, I don't know what kind of a contract this was, or if this was something that these, the poor work product could potentially be a problem down the road. You may want to have another contractor come out and check the work, depending on what this is. And if the work isn't done properly and they're licensed, you may want to go to the register of contractors and make a complaint against them. I think this is one that's hard for me to comment on without having a phone call with you and finding out more information. But I guess the best thing to do just based on the facts that you've given me is come up with a list of why you deserve a discount and then go to the company and ask for the discount. Okay, next question, number seven, is from an HOA board member. I'm baffled by the restrictions on the use of video recording of board meetings. However, as I am a video recording our board meetings, can those recordings be used as evidence in an action with the Department of Real Estate in front of the ALJ? 
Okay, so this is a board member asking about a video recording. Apparently, the board is currently recording all the board meetings. And if you are doing that's a book and record at the association. And as such, those recordings can be used as evidence in anything. It can be a book and record that's being requested by an owner. It can be used in a lawsuit as evidence. It can be used in an ADRE case. So all of these different avenues can be used to see the video and to use it as evidence. Your association is not required to record board meetings. I would say that some associations, if they're regularly using Zoom, they are recording them, but you don't have to. It's just a choice that your association is making. Some benefits of recording them are that you can send out a blast email. And if people weren't able to join live at the meeting, they can go back and watch it in their free time. But of course, a negative consequence is that the meeting video could be used against the association if there's unprofessional behavior or maybe inappropriate comments or something like that. It could be used against the association. But on the flip side, it could also be used to show how reasonable and how the board came to making a decision. I'm neutral on recording board meetings. If associations are doing what they're supposed to be doing, which I hope you are, because that's why we're out here providing free education is to give you the tools so that you can do your job successfully. There should be no reason why you wouldn't be okay with the videos being distributed and owners watching it later and making records requests and using it as evidence in a hearing. Okay, um, next question, number eight from an HOA board member. Our dues were raised 6% in January, 2022. A homeowner consistently underpays each month, paying the 2021 amount. Just you know, this is something that happens all the time when there's a fee increase. There's always one or two stragglers that do this. Six letters have been sent this year addressing the shortage. Can monthly underpayments be assessed a late fee? which would be $15 in our case. I would say yes. The answer to that is they don't pay the full amount. There's a balance due and for that month and a late fee can be charged. And is there a dollar amount that is necessary to trigger a demand letter with legal fees? On this one, I don't know. It's only 6%. So I'm assuming you know this is a de minimis amount that's owed, but this is the type of thing that I will tell you from personal experience of 26 years doing this. This is the kind of thing that if you let it fester, it is going to become a big problem in the future. So a couple of ideas. I do think that your association should first send this owner a, a formal letter from the board or the management company, just reminding them about the dues increase, letting them know that they've shorted by this amount of months and they owe the short fee, whatever that amount is, plus a late fee for each of those months. And in that letter, you may want to state that we may be turning this over to our attorney for collection action of delinquent assessments, which you're required to do if you're a planned community. So under 33-1807-K, you've got to tell them, hey, we're going to turn this over to the attorney if you don't correct this. What I would really recommend is these are sticky wicket situations, and I would recommend that you send the letter Hopefully they'll just pay it plus the late fees, the amount that's in dispute or the amount that's under shortage. If they reach out to you and they say, hey, we'll pay the shortage, but can you waive the late fees? I probably would just waive it just to make this situation go away. But one parting piece of advice I'm going to give you is don't let this fester. 
send that letter right away because we've seen this in other associations where investors for like six years and then the amount becomes enormous and then it really does become a big issue. So don't let that happen. Get that letter to them. Let them know, hey, this is going to go to the attorney in that letter if you don't correct this and let them know that there is a late fee for every month that they continue to short pay. Okay, next question. They don't say if they're a board member or a member of, of the community. If an HOA fails to enforce the CCNRs, can you request your dues be reimbursed for the years of paying them to protect your deed rights? So short answer on that is no. You cannot withhold payment of assessments just because you feel that the association isn't doing their job or isn't enforcing the CCNRs or made mistakes. It's not something that you'll win on if you do that and it's a very bad idea. Okay, next question, number 10 from a board member. Regarding 33-1806, which is the resale of units, information required, the resale disclosure, resale disclosure fee statute, please clarify what documents an association with more than 50 units must provide to the buyer or their agent without the request of the buyer or their agent and upon request of different. Section A1-7 through lists those documents, but I'm not certain they are required to be provided as a standard packet or only on request. Then please indicate with whom the association will receive a signed acknowledgement of the buyer's receipt of said documents. Finally, should the association retain a copy of the list of documents provided and such acknowledgement in the lot file? Okay, lots of questions on this one. Okay, so first of all, look at our cheat sheet on transfer fee versus disclosure fees. We already gave that to you today in the presentation with an earlier question. You also want to take a peek at 33-1806. All of the documents listed in section A1 through 7 must be provided. So it's CCNRs, bylaws, rules of the association, articles of incorporation, a copy of the most recent reserve study if the association has one or a summary of the reserve study if it's over 10 pages the financials of the association. I'm just going off my memory. All of the documents listed in section A, one through seven, you're required to provide all of those to every buyer that goes into escrow and a disclosure package is provided to them. Who does the association receive the signed acknowledgement from? There is a statement that the buyers have to sign about understanding that they're moving into an association. There's a whole language and that we can foreclose if they don't pay their assessments. The title company typically provides that to the management company for the association after the closing. If it hasn't been provided, the management company should be following up with the title company to find out why it wasn't provided. If for some reason the buyer refuses to sign it, then the association should follow up with the buyer directly to get the signature and maybe possibly turn it over to your attorney if you can't get them to sign it. Honestly, that hardly ever happens. I don't think that's going to happen in many cases. So the association typically receives that signed acknowledgement of the buyers from the title company. Do we need to retain a copy of the list of documents provided? You don't necessarily need to. You should provide a copy of the disclosure statement or you should have a copy of that in the file, not the not all the attachments. You can give them the, like the, the cover sheet to put that in the file. Also, the acknowledgement should be in the file. That's a great idea to put that in the owner's file as well. Okay, next question, number 11, is from a homeowner. Our HOA has a website that is in the total control of the board. 
They refuse to share the email addresses of the homeowners. Is that legal? They do circulate owner phone numbers on an annual basis, but cite confidentiality when they ask to share email addresses. As a homeowner, it'd be nice to have everybody's email. Can the board legally refuse to share them? The short answer on this is probably yes. This is a personal record that is something that is typically not disclosed. So owners' emails and actually, honestly, owners' phone numbers are typically things that are not disclosed to the membership unless the owners agree in writing that this information can be disclosed. So I think your board is well within their rights to withhold the emails unless the owners agree to open up that information and provide that to other owners. Okay, next question. We also have a great cheat sheet, just so you know, on technology and community associations, which you may want to take a look at. It talks about websites and other technology issues that may affect your association. And my office has shared that with you, or we'll be sharing that with you shortly on Zoom and Facebook Live. Okay, question 12 is from a board member. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the most quarrelsome restriction in our CCNRs. It relates to advertising short-term rentals. And it states the use of residential lots for rental purposes other than leases of one year or more shall not be advertised, broadcast, or listed in any brochure or directory, nor offered for rent by any agent for a fee or commission. Okay, that's a pretty outdated provision would be my first thought about it, but it still is a contract, right? This is in your CCNRs. The one good thing on your CCNRs is it says the use of residential lots for rental purposes other than leases of one year or more shall not be advertised, broadcasted. Well, this isn't worded very well. So, I mean, I'm also a little bit worried. You're saying short-term rentals. I'm assuming that leases of one year or less possibly might be allowed here. I have to see it in the context of the entire provision in your CCNRs. I think the way that I would probably read this would be, okay, the use of residential lots for rental purposes other than leases of one year or more shall not be advertised broadcast. Okay, so using residential lots for rental purposes other than leases of one year or more shall not be advertised. I guess what they're saying here is that you can't advertise short-term rentals and short-term rentals would apparently be defined as any lease for less than a year. So you can't do that through any advertising, broadcast, brochure, directory. This is a sticky wicket for sure. I guess I'd like to see it in the context of the entire document, but it does appear that you cannot advertise short-term rentals, but you can advertise leases of one year or more. That's a strange provision, but that's what it says. Okay, next question from a condominium board member. Our community has two small visitor parking lots on the north and south ends of the complex. We continually have problems with residents, whether it be owners or renters, using the visitor parking for their personal parking, despite violation notices and or fines. Our governing documents have no provisions for towing for unauthorized parking. How can we get more compliance with violators? Parking is, is always a difficult situation, especially in a condominium where there's limited space. 
reminders to owners through communication that there are certain areas where you should not be parking and it's only for guests. So putting it on your newsletter, your website, reminders by email, a good first line of defense. Second line of defense, you could get those really sticky stickers and start putting them on the vehicles that park in violation of this on the driver's side window. As a reminder that they're in violation, you can use the fines. You could go to the ADRE and file a complaint with the Department of Real Estate or, and have a hearing to get them to acknowledge that they shouldn't be parking in this area. There's probably no teeth, enforcement teeth through the ADRE. You can file a lawsuit against the owner. You can send up violation letters. I already talked about fines. You can turn it over to your association's attorney to handle the violation. There's a lot of different legal remedies that you have here, but I'm not going to deny that this is a, a difficult one because you got to trace the car to the unit and be able to prove that they're not a visitor and that it's the owner actually violating the sections. You've got to really dot your I's and cross your T's if you're going to move this into the violation mode. Some associations also use like a nightly patrol service that comes in and, and monitors parking in your community. That's another option. You could consider amending your CCNRs to allow towing or booting of these vehicles. There's lots of options. Reach out to our firm and we can maybe try to help you navigate this problem. Okay, question 14 from a board member. As an HOA, we have never had Christmas decorations put up by the association. With a recent unprecedented hike in monthly fees, some newer board members and a small percentage of the homeowners want to spend HOA money on holiday decorations. Are there any rules against this and suggestions for not spending any HOA funds? Any issues if Christmas holiday decorations are donated and allowed for a month that would then require us to allow all donated things for display? Some examples would be like breast cancer awareness, Easter, cultural history months, 4th of July, et cetera. Okay, so it's unusual, honestly, that your HOA has never had holiday decorations like December holiday decorations put up. Most associations do do something. I'd say definitely a majority of associations in Arizona do something for the holidays. Some, it sounds like some board members and some homeowners want to have holiday decorations in your community. I think that's fine. It's got to be a majority of the board, though, to decide if you're going to do this. There aren't any rules against this. You want to look at your association's documents on how assessments can be spent, but this is typically going to fall under one of the categories that would be what category we use for decorating the common areas is something that I think would fall under one of the general categories for assessment usage. You don't want to go overboard and spend fifteen or $20,000 on decorations. So maybe you put a cap on it and talk about what's going to be installed. Maybe start light and do something like white lights at the entrance or something, or maybe a wreath just to ease into it. I know my association where I live, they never had any holiday decorations until like maybe six or seven years ago. And a homeowner donated the lights because the board didn't want to spend the money to do it. And then bam, what do you know? Everybody loved it so much. Then from that point forward, the association started decorating with lights. So sometimes change, you have to ease into change. So that's a recommendation, but I'm not opposed to 
having um, the association spend some funds for holiday decorating, as long as the decorating is appropriate and it's representative of the community and you may have a pro budget on it because it's the first year so that we don't go overboard. I don't think it opens up for the association to have to put up stuff for every holiday at that point. It, that's really not something that is going to happen. This is just for the holidays. Some associations do decorate for Halloween, but pretty much that's the only two holidays that associations are decorating for each year. Okay, next question is from a board member. Our bylaws state the following. Officers shall be elected annually and each shall hold office for one year unless he or she shall sooner resign, shall be removed or shall otherwise be disqualified to serve. What would be an action by a director that would disqualify a director to serve and what does disqualification mean? Could a blatant unethical act lead to disqualification? Okay, so a couple of things. I want to make sure that we understand the distinction here. The section in your bylaws that you're quoting is the officer section. And officers are appointed annually under your documents. And officers can be removed by a majority vote of the board. Now, that's different from directors being removed. So let's give an example. I'm currently the vice president of my association, and the rest of the board in my association could decide that they don't want me to be the vice president anymore. So it could be for cause, it could be without cause, whatever. And so what could happen is just a majority of my board could just say, okay, Beth, we don't want you to be vice president anymore. Majority vote, I'm out as vice president. But that doesn't mean that I'm out as a director. I'm still a director at large. So I want to make the distinction here under your bylaws, if you remove an officer from their officer position, it does, it's, they're still a director. If you want to remove somebody as a director from your association, you have to follow state law and state law. We have a summary of it in our top 10 cheat sheet. You can go to our website to find it. I think it's number six on it and it outlines the procedure to remove a director from office. Okay. That being said, what would be an action by a director that would be a disqualification to serve? Now, remember, this section is talking about officers, not directors. So I don't know. They don't define it. Maybe they stop showing up at meetings or maybe they're being really disruptive to the board. They don't define it. And I'm only seeing this one sentence. I'm not seeing it in the context of your entire document. There may be a definition of disqualification, like you missed three meetings and you can't be an officer anymore or something like that. It's hard to define that without seeing your documents. Can a blatant unethical act lead to disqualification of an officer? Possibly. But it's, again, not going to lead to a disqualification of a director at large. They would just lose their officer role position if a majority of the board wanted to remove them from being an officer. Okay, next question. Is there anything other than the notice of annual meeting that is required to be sent by mail to owners? Can everything else be electronically sent unless otherwise noted in the governing documents? So really good question. So you want to look at the Condominium Act and the Planned Communities Act. In the open meeting sections, they talk a little bit about notice of meetings. And when we talk about the notices that are required to be mailed to owners, this would be for the annual meeting or for special meetings of the entire membership. And that would be like removal of a director, voting to remove a director. Possibly also you may need to do it for a special assessment, meeting of the membership, 
uh, increase in assessments that requires a vote of the membership, meeting of the membership. So there are certain circumstances where you have to send the notice of the meeting by mail and just broadly define the annual meeting and then any special meeting of the membership. Those would be the requirement to send out the notice of meeting, not less than 10, not more than 50 days in advance of that annual meeting or meeting of the membership. Can everything else be sent electronically? Basically, yes. So just regular board meeting notices can be electronically. You could put those on your website. Random notices to the community. Hey, the front gate's going to be closed because we're power washing the pavement. Those all type of notices, those could just be sent electronically. Okay, next question, number 17 from one of my favorite community managers in the industry. Great to see this question from you here today. In a community with a tree-lined streets in the streetscapes, and this is a requirement to have the approved tree for that street, does the association have any liability if the tree roots lift the sidewalk? The owners own their land and the streetscaped area, the landscaping strip in between the sidewalk and the street, and the city owns the sidewalk and the street. The HOA has no ownership in this situation, but does have the requirement to actually have the tree. The trees in question are CISOs or CISOs, which we all know cause a lot of problems, root damage to pipes, but the board has approved the replacement to be a Chinese sachet or sachet, which doesn't have invasive roots like the CISO. Okay, so do we have liability if the tree roots lift the sidewalk? Okay, so the owners own the land and this streetscape area. We don't own this land. It sounds like the owners put the trees in at an approved tree list, right? And it sounds like maybe, or maybe the tree was approved by the prior board or something or the developer. If this is a tree that's the, the owner's tree and they have it on their property, that's their issue. I don't feel that the association has any liability just because we are supposed to have tree-lined streets and our streetscapes. I don't think we have liability because it's not our tree. It's not on common areas. This is all on the owner. Okay, next question from a board member. Is the HOA liable for damages to a home where the home is adjacent to a parking area and a car crashes into the home? Okay, so good question, liability. Unfortunately, we see one of these car damage, car crash issues frequently, six or seven times a year where a car veers into maybe the common area sign in the community or a wall that's an owner's responsibility to maintain. I guess the question is, do we have liability to a home where the home adjacent to a parking area, apparently the car crashes into the home? So I don't believe so. I don't have any knowledge that the association is aware of a dangerous condition. It's a parking area. I'm teaching my 15 and a half, or actually my 16 year old now, he just turned 16, how to drive. And I can tell you that even in a safe parking area, <laughs> it's a possibility that somebody could do something unsafe. The driver could do something unsafe. And from my perspective, just because somebody's backing out of a parking area and then crashes into a home, doesn't mean that there's any liability. The owner purchased the home knowing that there was a parking area adjacent to them. Now, who the owner does have a claim against would be the driver, and they should be investigating that. But I'm not hearing anything 
about a dangerous condition or that the association has allowed a dangerous condition to continue. And therefore, we should have some liability here. I'm not hearing that. So I don't think that there should be any liability here. If the owner is threatening to sue the association, you may want to reach out to your legal counsel and talk about, okay, is there any issue here? You may need to notify your insurance carrier that, hey, there's been a threat of litigation. Just put them on notice. You're not making a claim, but just notify them that, hey, somebody's made this claim and we're just notifying you, which is a requirement under our insurance policy. Anytime someone notifies us that they're going to sue us, but I'm not seeing any liability here. Okay, former board member, next question. What can be done about the board meeting mostly by email and not letting the HOA know what was discussed or decided? I heard they planned on cutting down bushes that are fairly small to save water. Okay, we talked a little bit about email board meetings or boards voting by email earlier in this presentation. It shouldn't be done unless you're in an emergency circumstance and there's no other alternative for the board to make a quick decision in less than 48 hours. So what can be done? You're a former board member. I get it. I've been in your shoes. I was off my board for about a decade before I got back on again. And it's frustrating to be a former board member and see things not going well. What I would recommend is that you state in writing your concerns to the board, that you're concerned that they're doing making board decisions by email, remind them of the open meeting law requirements. You could hand them a copy of our cheat sheet, you know, on our webpage, mulcahylawfirm.com. We have a great cheat sheet on board meetings and the open meeting law. We have two separate cheat sheets. We've got lots of videos on our website on this topic. Forward them the information so that they don't continue to make this mistake. Maybe they'll reach back out to you and say, hey, we're not making decisions by email and whatever, we, this bush was decided by the landscaper based upon a prior authorization to remove or something like that. I don't know what the facts are, but document it in writing and provide them with some educational materials so that they continue to follow the law. Next question, number 20. And just to give you a baseline where we are, we have about 25 more questions to go. Lots of questions this morning. Um, looks like we have about 53 people with us on Zoom and an additional number of people on us on Facebook Live with us. Okay, number 20, this is from a former board member. When is a unanimous consent to action by the board utilized? I would say never. Please do not use this unless you're in some sort of an emergency circumstance. We've had a lot of questions on this this morning. This is the third question. So Using email or unanimous consent action by the board really only should be used in emergency circumstances. This is not something that you should be using on a day-to-day -day usage to handle regular board business. I know there are some management companies out there who are suggesting this and pushing boards to do this, but there are two cases in Arizona decided by administrative law judges that say you can't do this if you're an HOA because it skirts the Arizona open meeting law. So please be mindful of that. Please don't do that. If you have done it in the past, just draw a line in the sand and stop doing it. I know that there are times because I served on my board and I've been on my board now for 15 years in total. So I get it. I, there's, <laughs> I've seen a lot on the board. Um, there may be times where you do make a quick decision by email, just immediately at the next board meeting, re-verify that or re-vote on that decision so that there's a paper trail and do your best, 
please to avoid making decisions by email as a board because it does violate the Arizona Open Meeting Law. Okay, next question from a board member. How does an HOA board determine when to update their CCNRs? We have a great cheat sheet on this called Amending Association Documents, a five-step plan. We'll be sharing it with you on Zoom and Facebook Live. And we also have it on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. I think the baseline, bright line rule on this would be every 10 years, you really should be updating your association documents. We give you the reasons that boards are typically amending their documents. It's to remove old developer language, to bring your documents consistent with Arizona law and federal law, clean them up, make them easier to read, shorten them up, to change things, to make them consistent with how things are actually being run in your association versus maybe you've got some outdated language in there that doesn't longer follow. But about every 10 years is a baseline. Okay, question number 22 from a board member. I was just voted onto the board, and in my past experience, the board has conducted the meetings. In this association, the property manager runs the meetings, and nothing is voted on. A member of the board will make a motion. It is seconded, and if no further discussion, it is carried. Isn't there supposed to be a vote after seeing if any homeowners want to discuss the topic? Yes, uh, you are right. Things are not probably running the way they need to be at your association. So you're new to the board. They may have been doing it this way for a long time. And so you're going to want to gently bring up this topic. You may want to give them our cheat sheet on board meetings that kind of talks a little bit about how board meetings should be run, but just some quick thoughts on your question. So really the property manager shouldn't be running the meeting. The board president should be. The only time I see a property manager kind of coming in to assist is if you've got a board that is new, they don't know how to run a meeting. Maybe then the board, the property manager for a couple meetings is gently helping them run the meeting so they learn the ropes, but ultimately the president should be running the meeting. You are correct that the proper procedure for taking a vote and anytime the board makes a decision, it has to be done this way, is a motion is made. There is a second, and both of these are done by board members, not the manager. So motion to do something, a second on that motion, then there's discussion. And during the discussion, any owner is allowed to contribute with their comments. You can put a time period on that in case it's getting long. And then the board contributes on their comments, and then there is actually a vote. And then the meeting minutes reflect the motion, the second, that there was discussion, and then the results of the vote. So you want to make sure your association is doing that properly, because if you're challenged on anything in the future, it's not something that you're going to win on. If you, if you didn't vote on something, it's going to be a problem. So you want to make sure you're doing that going forward. Okay. A board member is asking this question. I'm hearing that the city of Chandler is going to allow residents to have chickens. Our CCNRs specifically prohibit livestock and poultry. Am I correct in the fact that our restrictions trump city variances? So apparently there is something that we found on the city of Chandler's website on this. I would encourage you to go check that out. It appears like on Thursday, November 10th, city of Chandler tentatively adopted an ordinance which allows chickens on any single family lot, but there's a final adoption of the ordinance that's scheduled for city council on December 5th, and then the change will become effective 30 days later. 
There's a whole bunch of information on this chicken issue. So I would encourage you to go to the city of Chandler's website to find out more information because if you're opposed to it or in favor of it, it appears that there might be a comment period that you might be able to comment on. But can the association's restrictions be more restrictive? Okay, the city's allowing poultry, but can we have a provision in our CCNRs that doesn't allow this? Yes, you can. And yes, it is enforceable. I got a second question, same thing. What can HOA communities do about, if this ordinance in Chandler is passed, what can HOA communities do about such issues such as noise, smell, and flying chicken coming from traditional communities that are adjacent to and impact HOA communities? Okay, so first line of defense, check your documents to see if you can prohibit this or if it's already prohibited in your CCNRs. So in your association, you can control that through your CCNRs because your CCNRs can be more restrictive than the city of Chandler's ordinances. Now, what can you do about adjacent communities that you don't have CCNRs over and that you can't control? I would just document the issues and then complain to the city. That's the best thing you can do. You can also complain to those neighbors or to those HOAs about any problems that you may have. That's the best advice I can give you. Okay, question number 25. As board president, I just wanted to express my appreciation and gratitude to Beth and company for providing years of many wonderful, informative webinars, luncheons, resources, and cheat sheets. You're an HOA board member's angel sent. Thank you and happy, merry, healthy, safe holiday season to all. Oh, that's so nice. Morgan Ronimus, who's my right-hand person, is right here in my office, and she's helping me manage the questions and run this, and she just wrote on here, oh my goodness, Daymaker on my screen, and I agree. Thank you very much to this board member. For those of you who are familiar with our firm, education, providing free education, giving homeowners, board members, and managers a place where they can come and ask questions so that they can do a better job and have less stress is a core value of our firm. And I'm not gonna lie to you, it takes a ton of time, but we love doing it. And that's why we do it because we care about our industry and we care about our clients and we care about everybody in our industries and want them to make good decisions. And also because we love it, let's face it, this isn't a job for me. I love coming to work every day. And I love my interactions with all of you. And just to receive a comment like this on the questions today truly warms my heart. And I appreciate it very, very much. Okay, question number 26 is from an owner and previous board member. We got a lot of questions this morning from previous board members, which I get it. It's hard. It's a hard position to be in. Okay, the question is, as an owner, what can be done when the association president makes verbal agreements with service vendors for work outside the scope of a contract? Sacks the current service vendor, he does give notice, then after signing the contract, brings to the board an executive session for approval of sacking an approved signed contract with the new vendor, rather than doing it in the open session, even though management company and at least one other board member advise this is against open meeting laws. Okay, so we got a little bit of a problem out here. Remember that anytime you hire or fire a vendor, it must be done in an open board meeting. You can go into an executive session to talk about performance of the vendor, but the actual hiring and firing, that's done in an open board meeting. 
So what do we do about an association president who allegedly isn't following the law? I think you should document your concerns in writing. The board members that advised against this should document their concerns in writing. The management company should document their concerns in writing. And maybe this person isn't a good fit to be the president if they don't change their behavior. And so you want to look at your bylaws as to how to remove the title of president from this person if that's something that continues. Okay, next question, number 27. My master association is in the process of updating its governing documents and plans to add a provision allowing for a reserve contribution charge. Each of our sub-associations already charge a disclosure fee for the preparation of a disclosure statement. Is there a problem with both the master and the sub-association charging these fees to new purchasers? So short answer, no. Check out our cheat sheet, which we've already shared with you today on capital contribution fees, which is like a reserve contribution fee, and disclosure fees. Just so you know, any association that has 50 or more lots or units can charge the disclosure fee. And so both the master and the sub could charge that. And if the master and the sub have the requisite language in their CCNRs that complies with Arizona law to charge a capital contribution fee or reserve contribution fee, that can be charged in both the master and the sub. Those fees are valid under the law as long as you're complying with the law for both the master and the sub to charge. Okay, next question. I'm a board member. We have seven board members. Can five or six board members attend the same open committee meeting, such as like finance or building and grounds, and not be in violation of creating a quorum? Generally speaking, no. Anytime you have a quorum of a board discussing association business, it's a board meeting. Now, if so generally speaking, no. If you're there discussing things, even though you're not, it's not a, in your board capacity, it's a quorum of the board and you're discussing association business. So it potentially is a violation of the open meeting law. Some ways around that would be less than a quorum attends these committee meetings, less than a quorum of the board. Or if you're attending it, five or six of you are attending it, just don't discuss at the meeting. Just go there to listen. Don't be a part of the discussion. Okay, next question is from the Architectural Committee Chair. We're on question 29 um, out of 45. Our CCNRs clearly state the following, transfer fee. We have had a ton of questions today on transfer fees and disclosure fees. We have got to get some information out on this in the spring. Maybe we add to one of our classes something on transfer fees, but I digress. Okay, transfer fee. Each purchaser of a lot shall pay to the association immediately upon becoming the owner of a lot a transfer fee in such amount that is established from time to time by the board. We feel this section describes a fee that is collected by the association and not by a third party. We feel that the fee is authorized by the board and not by legislature. And lastly, that this fee would be used by the board to fund the reserves as opposed to a fee collected at the close of escrow for disclosure documents. Do you agree? Okay, so under your documents, it does allow for a transfer fee, right? And I don't have, it's hard for me, I haven't seen the totality of your documents, but it appears that this transfer fee is allowable. It's saying we feel the section describes a fee that is collected by the association and not by a third party. 
I'm not sure what you mean by that, but I agree. The fees going to the association. I don't know if the management company is getting involved in this and trying to take that, but the way your documents are written, that transfer fee goes to the association. You feel it's a fee that is collected by the associate. Okay, so we feel that this fee is authorized by the board and not by the legislature. Okay, it's authorized by the CCNRs would be my comment. And that this fee would be used by the board to fund reserves. I'm not really sure where you're going on this, but okay, your documents appear to authorize a transfer fee. If I were your legal counsel for your association, I would be looking at, does this section in your CCNRs, is it legitimate to collect it? I'd be looking at the capital contribution fee section in um, state law. You might be able to charge this in conjunction with the Nonprofit Corporation Act, and it, it might be separate than a capital contribution fee, which would require a little bit different language to be enforceable. So at first glance, I think it's probably enforceable. You also can charge a disclosure fee if your association has 50 or more units or lots. But again, go back to that cheat sheet. We outline specifically the difference between a capital contribution fee and a disclosure fee in that cheat sheet that we've shared now a couple of times here in this presentation. This might be a little bit different distinction though, because yours is called a transfer fee and it may not need to have all those requirements that the capital contribution fee has because the Nonprofit Corporation Act also authorizes a de minimis transfer fee. So it's probably okay, but I'd like to see the documents in its entirety to fully comment on that. Okay, question number 30, 15 more questions to go. We're smoking through this an hour and 15 minutes in. Okay, question 30 from a board member. What level of audit is needed for a 118 unit HOA and how often should it be done? That is the million dollar question. Okay, as a baseline, under the Condominium Act and the Plain Communities Act, every association every year has to have an audit review, a compilation done of its books and financial records. When the legislature wrote that statute and made it the law, they didn't put a lot of teeth in it, meaning they don't give us a specific definition of what level of audit is needed, et cetera. What they do say is that if your documents, typically it's gonna be in your bylaws, say that the audit has to be done by a CPA, then it has to be done by a CPA. Just as a baseline here, every association has to have an audit review or compilation done every year. If your bylaws require you to have an audit done by a CPA, it has to be done by a CPA. It doesn't say what level, so you're gonna have to pick. If your documents are silent on having an audit done by a CPA, it doesn't even address that, which honestly most are in that situation, then the board can choose to have a CPA do an audit they can have a bookkeeper look at the records. They can have a committee at the association do a review of the records. It's really loosey-goosey. But within six months after the fiscal year ending, so let's give an example. Most associations' fiscal year is going to end in December, December 31st. So by June 30th, you need to have something in your record showing that that audit review or compilation was completed by your association. And again, it just depends on what your documents say. If you have to have it done by a CPA, the board has to decide what level of audit that they want. How often should an audit be done? I mean, ideally every year. 
a lot of associations are not in that financial position. And if their bylaws don't specify an audit to be done by a CPA, it's really discretionary and the board makes the decision. What I would recommend is try to have an audit every couple of years, even if your documents aren't requiring you to have an audit by a CPA every couple of years. It's just best business practices to, to do it every year. If you don't have the financial wherewithal, what you can do is give the CPA three years of records and say, you randomly pick a year. Um, that's what some associations do. Hope that answers your question. Question number 31, we never had a reserve study and know we need to have this done. In the meantime, is there a factor we can use to help us calculate how much money we need to set aside? So we have a great cheat sheet on reserves funds that we are going to be sharing with you here today. You can also find it on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Is there a factor to help us calculate it? No. I know some People in the industry say, well, three years or three months of assessments is a good formula. That is not a good formula. So please do not buy into that. Really what you need to do is hire a reserve study company to come out and do a full reserve study. And then you'll know from reading that how much money you should have in your reserve. If you don't have that much money in your reserve, they'll give you a plan to show you how to get there over a period of time. And it can be done. My association where I live, I got off the board, like I said earlier, for 10 years. And when I got back on the board, we had a reserve of like less than $200,000. That was six years ago. And now we're at almost $2.6 million. So it can be done. It just You just need to be planning and getting that good reserve study done and then following it. There are some online resources to have you, you create the reserve study. They're not as good as a reserve company though. Okay, next question from a board member, number 32. Board members' emails must be available to discovery. What happens if they are not available for viewing? Is there a statute addressing this? Okay, we have a great, we're gonna be sharing with you Arizona revised statutes on records requests and inspection of records by members. Take a look at that statute. Remember that any book and record of the association is discoverable by members unless it falls into one of the categories where we can prohibit a member from seeing them. I guess that the bottom line question here is emails. Why does your board have emails? <laughs> Remember, all decisions of your board should be made in an open board meeting. If you're Emails are just from one board member to another board member, and it's not a quorum or the board member to the manager. I know I have those in my email box. That may not necessarily be a book and record. I mean, maybe the manager should be putting in with the records of the association. There should be some sort of a policy on email in your association and records. And you really need to be careful as a board member about using your email to conduct board business because ultimately what could happen is if an owner sues to get copies of the emails, a judge is going to order that an independent contractor come in and pull all those emails from your server or from your computer. So we don't want that to happen. So think about adopting a policy in terms of use of email, which like I said, should be very limited and then have a one spot for all those emails to be kept for your association in case someone makes a records request. And one way to do that would be to set up a 
a cloud where you, you save it, maybe copy the manager on everything and the manager is pushing it into the cloud. But again, limit the use of emails, please. Okay, next question, number 33. Our HOA streets are owned by the association and considered private streets. Is it possible to convert the streets to public streets owned and maintained by the city of Mesa? And if so, how would we go about initiating that process? So great question. It's, is it possible? Anything's possible. Is the city going to want to take these streets back? Probably not because they may have to bring them up to city standards. There's a big cost to doing that. It's unlikely that they're going to do that. Of course, you can go to the city and broach that topic with them. My experience working with many cities throughout the state of Arizona is that's not something that there are any cities going to do, but you certainly can consider that. If the city would be willing to accept it, you need to work with your legal counsel to figure out how that's going to, you know, how we'd be able to legally do that because this, the, if the association owns those streets, there's going to have to be an amendment to the plat and to the association's documents to be able to give that land to the city. Always an optimist. In every situation, I try to be an optimist. I think people who work with me and know me know that's true. In this situation, I'm going to be a pessimist and tell you it's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, and I don't want you to waste a bunch of time, effort, and money trying to get this to happen because I don't think the city's going to take it back. And even if they would, you got all kinds of hurdles with that common area. You're going to have to get membership approval. You may have to amend your CCNRs, et cetera. So that's a real tough thing to do. Okay, question number 34. Does the last latest round of Arizona revised statutes now allow prospective board members to place election materials promoting themselves in HOA common areas? This question is actually from a condo, which is interesting, but I think my analysis applies to both condo and planned communities. Okay, so the latest round of legislation, and we have a great cheat sheet that we've implemented on the new legislation, which I would encourage you to take a look at, and it's on our website, mulcahylawfirm.com, and we may be sharing it with you here too. Basically, what it talks about is that owners can place on their property, not on common areas, election materials promoting board issues, whether it's election of a board, removal of a board member, any type of a vote that requires a meeting of the membership. So yes, that can be done, but only on that owner's property. And in a condo, that's probably only in their window, possibly in a limited common element area that they have exclusive use control over. Okay, question 35, 10 to go from a board member. We amended our CCNRs and there are no more rentals allowed. We saw a property on Realtor for rent. Property ownership transferred after our 12 2018 amendment via beneficiary deed, then transferred again to one of the beneficiaries, removing the other beneficiary and adding a spouse. We sent a quick text to them, letting them know rentals are not allowed. Heard nothing and the ad is still up. Okay, if I were evaluating this issue as your somebody an advisor, I would say, I'd want to look at what did that amendment say? Did you grandfather the current owners? What's the language on that? And then I would look to see whether this person is actually in violation. If they are, I would go through the process of sending them a letter as an association, a formal letter in writing, 
you may, I don't know what platform they're using. You might be able to contact realtor.com and let them know that this is, you know, an illegal rental or documents don't allow this. They may or may not listen to that. And you ultimately will want to turn this over to your legal counsel to pursue this violation. Okay, question number 36 on the board, long-term client of mine. Is fidelity insurance necessary if your HOA is self-managed? Yes, 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 and yes. Okay, that is like the most important time to have fidelity insurance, okay? Really, every association should have directors and officers insurance and a fidelity bond or fidelity insurance. Typically, the DNO policy has this as an add-on, and sometimes it's kind of low. So when you're looking at your renewal for your DNO policy, you want to make sure that you're looking at how much money you know you regularly keep in your checking account, and you want a fidelity bond to be at least in that amount or more and making sure that you're having protections in place so that your savings account, like your reserve account, you know, no one has access to that unless a majority of the board votes to move the money, especially in the self-managed association, just as an added protection. When you're self-managed, it's, it is more dangerous for potentially theft and fraud of association funds and We've got a great cheat sheet. I keep saying cheat sheets, but we do have a lot of cheat sheets. And that's one of the great things about our firm is we write about a lot of different topics. We have a great cheat sheet on theft and fraud in an association. And if you're a self-managed community, that is a must read. Anyways, is it necessary? Yes, you should have enough fidelity insurance to protect your association because there is no added layer of insulation of a management company to keep the association's funds safe by a third party. Okay, next question, number 37 from a previous board member. If a board member resigns and the rest of their three-year term is filled by another person and that person is elected for another three years, is that person considered to have fulfilled a total of six years? Our documents say you can only serve two terms. I love these questions. These are some of my favorite questions to try to figure out as an attorney in this area. I got to look at your documents to give you a definitive answer. But typically, if somebody is filling a term, an unfinished term of another board member, it may not be considered a full term. And so it's very possible that if somebody picks up whatever, however much of an unfinished term of a former board member, and then they get reelected, it may not count as two terms. A term is typically going to be defined as three years. And so if they might get a little add-on for the the time that they fulfilled somebody else's obligation, but you're going to want to have your legal counsel take a look at that issue so that you're making a good decision as a community. But I think it's probably okay, but you're going to want to definitely check the documents, the specific language of the documents on this. Okay, we're on question number 38. I just got a little message from Morgan on my dream team that we're up to 49 questions. So we're 11 11 more to go. Okay, board member, what are the correct procedures to move from negotiations to mediation regarding disputes between an HOA and developer? We have a great cheat sheet on transition from developer to homeowner control, which we're going to share with you. What are the correct procedures? So you really should be working with an attorney that specializes in construction defect if you're in this process with the developer. And the correct procedures, 
you got to talk with your construction defect attorney because there's some very specific requirements of the Arizona statutes on handling construction defect disputes. And so you need to reach out to your trusted advisor who hopefully is your construction defect attorney and ask for their advice. That's why you hired them to help you with this problem. Okay, question nine, former board member. We have had so many questions today from former board members. I get it. It's frustrating when you've been on the board and now you're not on the board anymore. You're seeing things not going well. Okay, is it prohibited for a husband and wife to both serve as board members? Great question. I'd have to see the documents for an association. I can tell you for sure it's a bad idea. It's a horrible idea, actually. I've seen it crash and burn and fail many times in an association. I guess you have to look in your bylaws to see if, you know, what are the requirements to serve on the board? Typically, it's just you have to be a record owner. And if both the husband and the wife are record owners, Technically, they both can run for the board or be on the board, be elected to the board or appointed to the board. It's just a horrible idea, though, because it's too much power within one household. And it's it just creates a lot of problems. For example, let's say you have a three member board and you've got two of those three being a husband and wife. You've got a quorum 24 seven or whatever you're with them. Also, it just turns into like team up and double team and it looks bad for the homeowners. We typically will see it when we can't get anybody to run for the board. And even in those situations, I still advise against doing that. Okay. Is it prohibited? Again, short answer. It depends on what your documents state. Okay. We're on question number 49 questions to go. From a board member, any tips and pitfalls to avoid when negotiating with a cellular company to install facilities on the HOA's common areas? Yes, I have some suggestions on this. Get your legal counsel involved immediately because they can negotiate a significantly better deal for you because we know what the going rates are. We don't want you to enter into something that could be detrimental to your community in the long run. We want to make sure that you even have the right to enter into this type of an agreement. There's all kinds of different parts of the contract that you want to evaluate, like how long is the contract? What if technology changes? What can they do with the device? Can they sell the rights? This is just like a minefield for you. So make sure you have your legal counsel helping you through this entire process, including the negotiation and the final contract. Number 41 from one of my favorite board members in Scottsdale. Does Scottsdale's rule on artificial grass apply to condos? I don't know if this is by rule. I don't know if you mean that this is like a new ordinance or something. I'm not familiar with it, but I can tell you that the legislature, as we discussed earlier in this presentation, has recently passed a new law that went into effect in September saying associations cannot prohibit artificial turf and on an individual owner's property only in a planned community. And so I don't know what this new rule is. Since I know you, you can email me and I can get more information from you and hopefully answer your question. Okay, question number 42. I live in a community that comprises of duplexes and fourplexes. The fourplexes have two different styles of units. If one specific style of units in the fourplexes has similar structural issues, can the HOA do an assessment on the owners of just that style of unit 
per state statute. This is a sticky wicket. So I don't know if you're a condo or a planned community. I'd have to, to look at this a little more carefully. You're saying an HOA, so it's possible that you're subject to the Planned Communities Act. It would have to be in the CCNRs and there's something in the Planned Communities Act that wouldn't allow us to charge a fee to one specific group of owners and not other owners in certain circumstances. It's really hard for me to comment on this without knowing what you mean by that style of unit. You're going back and forth, you're saying HOA, but then it's unit, which is typically a condo. Condos do frequently have different assessment rates as outlined in their CCNRs. So hard for me to answer this question without knowing more facts and seeing your CCNRs. Question 43 from a homeowner. Our CCNRs do not indicate fine amounts for violations except between $25 to $500 per violation. Can the homeowners know the exact fine amount for every item that would be a violation? Okay, so you're asking this as a homeowner. So from the association's perspective, we are not under the law required to have an exact fine policy or an exact fine amount for every item, a a detailed list. And so you can ask, but the association isn't required to provide that under the law. And if the association gratuitously wants to do that, that's totally fine, but we're not required to do that under the law. Okay, question number 44. Are can our board make changes to the parking plan at any given time, or do they have to amend the CCNRs, which refer to the condominium plan that states how the parking should be distributed? The board considered removing guest parking, so every condo unit gets the same amount of parking spaces for their unit. I'm wondering if by plan, condominium plan, you mean condominium plat? So this is a tricky question. So if I were looking at this issue, I would look at where is this parking plan outlined? Is it in the CCNRs? Is it in, is it on the plat? Does the board have the authority to do this under the CCNRs? This is a, a change that I'm not sure the board can make alone. Without more information, it's hard for me to answer, but I my antenna is up that this board needs to get advice from their legal counsel to make sure that what they're trying to do, they can do under their current documents, or do they need to actually take the step to amend their CCNRs to implement this and amend the plat to implement this? Okay, question number 45. We're down to our last five questions. This is from a president of an association. Can an HOA set a limit on the time of remodeling of a unit? So let's say units being flipped or a roll-up in the driveway. So typically, yes. When you give the approval on the architectural application, and actually I just had an issue on this, came up last night when I was working late and a client was asking me this question. So when you give the approval on the architectural application, one thing that you could do is add that there's a limit, a time limit on how long this remodeling can take place. Like don't make it too short because we all know there's construction delays and shortages of product and supplies, et cetera, right now in the construction industry. But one thing that you could do is make the approval conditional on that. It would be best, of course, if that was in the CCNRs, although most associations don't have that in the CCNRs, it'd be best if you could put it in the architectural guidelines, if you have any, but having it in that approval is 
one step to acknowledge that, hey, this approval was contingent on you finishing the work within a year or whatever the construction project is taking. And so, yes, I, I do think that can be implemented. Same thing on the roll-off in the driveway, that should be as part of the approval or a rule that maybe the association um, implements on any roll-offs that are used as part of the construction process. Uh, next question, number 46, board member. If the HOA governing documents specify that a particular action can be decided by the sole discretion of the board, does that action still have to be addressed in an open meeting? Or can that action be completed by the board via email? Another email question today. I feel like I've been knocking my head against a concrete wall. How many years have I been talking about not using email to make decisions? Frustrating. Please be careful about using email. If your board is making decisions outside of a meeting, you shouldn't be doing this. It's only used in emergency situations where there's no other choice and you have to make a decision in 48 hours. Okay, so let's get back to your question. Sorry, I hate, hate to go into mock mode where I'm like scolding you, but <laughs> um, it's frustrating for me. Okay, so does the action have to be addressed in an open meeting? Yes. Anytime a quorum of the board is making a decision discussing association business, it needs to be done in an open board meeting. The exception to that is in an emergency circumstance. The action cannot be completed by the board by email unless it's in an emergency circumstance. Okay, last three questions. Number 47, are there any HOA regulations that address posting of HOA meeting minutes and financial report? Is there any law or any sort of requirement that associations post, put it on their website, maybe a bulletin board, minutes and financial reports? No. Is it best practices? Yes. The associations that communicate the best and provide information to owners at their fingertips without them asking, guess what? They have the fewest problems. Do you want to be an association that has a lot of hassles and problems? Um, I don't think so. So the better you can communicate, the better your chances are to have a stress-free time on the board. That being said, if you don't want to put the minutes and financial reports, post them somewhere, you don't have to. If an owner requests to see them, you do have to provide that information to the owner, assuming it's not one of those categories that can be withheld from disclosure under the law. Okay, last two questions. Last two questions of 2022. Number 48, what can a board do about a couple of board members who work independently planning jobs and then bringing to the board meetings for votes? This then prolongs our meetings as the rest of the board has to ask a lot of questions since it is new info we weren't aware of. This has become an ongoing problem. Okay, this is kind of like a double-edged sword here because a lot of times boards will have less than a quorum of board members go off to the side and do fact-finding. Like maybe they're investigating attorneys to hire or maybe they're thinking about a new landscaping company and then they can combine the information and then they bring it back to the board for decision-making. And I see that and that seems to work for some associations. In other associations, it can be bad because two or three of the board members are violating the open meeting law because they're a quorum and they're doing all this side work and then they're doing it in secret and the other board members don't know about it. And then they bring it back to the board and then everybody gets upset because why were you doing this? Why weren't we part of it? It's a double-edged sword. It can be good. It can be bad. 
And so if your board is doing this and as a board member, you don't like it, then I think that you need to express that to your board. Hey, I don't like how this is running. Can we find a way that makes us more involved in this fact-finding that you're doing? And just remember that if you have a quorum of the board that's doing this fact-finding, it needs to be open meeting. Okay, next question. Last question, number 49. is from a board member, a client of ours. So great to see you here this morning. How do you suggest we compel the prior board to furnish the new board with executive minutes and legal correspondence? We have requested this and are getting the runaround. That's just wrong. Number one, as the board, you are allowed to see prior meeting minutes of the association, executive meeting minutes, legal correspondence. That's part of your responsibility is to understand what happened in the past. Sometimes this gets a little sticky because let's say you've got the old board, right? And you've got the new board and the new board consists of people that sued the old board. (laughs) And there's all kinds of sensitive lawsuit stuff in there with the old board. That happens. You still got to share it. Assuming that the litigation is over, right? And you're not involved in litigation where there would be a current conflict of interest. So I think they need to step up. They need to provide that information and move forward as a community. Okay, so we're done. We finished it. 2022 on the books. We've had a great year of 12 virtual HOA academies with, in partnership with the cities, towns, and municipalities throughout the state of Arizona. What a great year. We have provided free education to thousands of residents in these cities. And our videos um, that we have posted on our website and on our YouTube channel are now up to over 60,000 views, really all in the past couple of years. So I wanted to say thank you for a great education year to our clients and our friends and to the neighborhood services departments that we work with to put these classes together. And I, I just want to call them out all out by name because they're awesome and we love working with you. The cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. A great big thank you to you for trusting our firm to provide education to your residents about HOAs and condominiums. We covered a lot of territory this year and we had a lot of fun doing it. And I don't know how many questions we answered throughout the past 12 months, but I got to tell you, it's definitely in the thousands. So thank you to our participants who have been listening in all year. Without you, we we wouldn't be doing these classes. So thank you for showing up. Thank you for asking us challenging questions that make us think and allow other people to learn from your questions too. Today, we had over 54 attendees on Zoom and 17 live viewers on Facebook. And that's awesome for our end of the year, especially a busy time of the year where everybody's so busy with the holidays. So 2022 is now on the books. A few things to think about as we approach 2023. First, we've already had our schedule for the first six months of 2023 of our virtual learning opportunities. So the first half of our 2023 Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Condominium Academy schedule is now posted on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Just go to our seminars tab. 
class number one of the 2023 HV Academy is going to take place, same place, same time as same dates as 2022. It's always going to be the third Tuesday of the month. And that will be Tuesday, January 17th at 11 a.m. And we're going to be talking about the hottest topic in our industry right now, short and long-term rentals in HOAs and condos. We're also going to add a bonus topic of disclosure fees versus transfer fees, because that is something that we talked about a lot today. And throughout the spring, we have a number of different topics. We're going to be talking about open meetings for sure, because I saw a lot of questions on emails today. So hope you'll join us for our January 17th first class of 2023. And don't forget, we will continue in 2023 with our first Friday's virtual event. We had that throughout 2022, and we will be continuing that again in 2023. Our next live virtual first Friday event will be on Friday, January 6th at 9 a.m., right here on Zoom and Facebook Live. And you can find the links and information on that on our website. And if you're on our mailing list, you'll also get a reminder. Last but not least, I just want to give you a brief reminder that our firm is still offering through the end of 2022, a complimentary 15-minute review of your association's CCNRs, bylaws, and rules to see if you want to amend them. I know that was a topic that came up quite a bit during the presentation today. We just do a 15-minute review. We let you know what it takes to amend the documents. And we give you some brief suggestions on what direction we think you should go in terms of what types of changes. So if you're interested in taking advantage of that free opportunity before December 31st, please reach out to me by email at bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com. You can find that on our website too at mulcahylawfirm.com or give me a call at the office at 602 241-1093. Just in conclusion, I would just like to wish everybody the best of the holiday season. I hope that you have a great rest of 2022. I'd like to do a shout out again for the neighborhood services departments that we work with. Thank you for partnering with us to provide this free vacation. And I hope everybody has a great rest of 2022 and that 2023 is a great year for you and your associations. Take care, everybody. Happy holidays and happy new year a little bit early. Bye. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. The attend of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. 